Welcome to this Burlington Audio Podcast. We hope you will be encouraged and inspired in your faith as you listen to this message. We'd love to hear what you think. Please be in touch with us through the website. More information and many more podcasts are all at burlingtonbaptist.org.uk. Thanks for listening. Great, thanks Lois. There's loads of chocolate here if you want to come and help yourself. Men. Just kidding, see what I did there. Um, this will wipe the smile off your face. GDPR, um, you, 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 you will be delighted with GDPR because it's emptied your email box, am I right? You have like, apart from Andrew, it's emptied our inboxes of unwanted junk and stuff. The back end of that is it puts lots of pressure on uh, small organizations, uh, small charities like our own to comply with a law that wasn't really written for us, but written to protect us against those that are trying to sell things. Uh, so there are two comments I want to make about it. Um, the first is just to say that if you're an organizational leader or a missional community leader, or you're holding some list or, or, and so on, uh, we, will, we will, we are endeavoring to come alongside you and help you with that as soon as. So don't panic or worry. We don't think anything's going off the, uh, off the, the radar or so on, but we'll, we, we will be in touch and give some process to, to help you feel confident and maybe, if necessary, to, to tighten things up. It wasn't really what I wanted to say. What I wanted to say was about when we pray for people here in church. Um, a long time ago, way back, when Noah built his ark, there was a culture in church life, and I think it's fair to say that it was true of um, this church's life. I've been around long enough, perhaps, to, to be able to say that. That if you were prayed for from the front because you were sick or there was a need, there was a sense in which people welcomed that with open arms. It was, it was, it was kind of like an, an, I don't know whether honour's the right word, but you really appreciated the gesture that the, the church, whoever they are, the church, had kind of recognised your situation and responded publicly about it, and that was a good thing. More recently, and I've no idea about time frames, but more recently, society has changed and become much more anxious, I think, about our own privacy, and very recently we've become very anxious about our privacy. So over a period of time, uh, and what we've been managing for quite a considerable period of time, is the reality that for some people, being prayed for when they have a need is, is, is the best thing, the most loving thing that we can do for them. They feel really valued and appreciated. For other people, perhaps even in exactly the same circumstance, it's their worst nightmare. They really wish no one would know, and the thought of being prayed for publicly is, is quite uncomfortable. So for quite a significant period of time, we've tried to manage that tension just by our own knowledge and awareness of people and so on. GDPR tightens the screws on that just a little bit more for us, uh, and I think it'll take us a little bit of a while to get it right. The knee-jerk reaction is to hardly pray for anyone unless we've had consented triplicate for fear of upsetting and mishandling someone's private information. Are you with me? Equally so, to be cavalier with someone's privacy, which none of us want to do, is, is equally detrimental and damaging. The point is this. We will therefore endeavor to be saying to you, are you happy for us to pray for you? It seems in a family context such the weirdest thing to ask people. Are you with me? It's like, do you mind if I give you a birthday present? 
You know, it just seems strange to, to ask that question in this kind of family environment. And, and it might take us a while for it all just to settle down. So um, I'm asking, I suppose, just for our corporate awareness of it as an issue. And uh, when it personally touches you to kind of um, understand why we're asking what for some of us seems blatantly obvious and for others of us might be a very valuable question. Okay? Uh, it's another layer of work. It's another layer of administration in terms of making sure we care for each other well. Um, but hopefully we can move forward uh, uh, together. I think the motto is common sense rules the day. And that's that if you want your information to remain private, so it should. If you want to be prayed for, then so you should be able to uh, be prayed for in that way. I don't think Mark chapter 15 had GDPR on their minds at all. The pace has slowed right down. And we're watching each event as it unfolds, almost in slow time. It's almost as if Mark, who was very fast, very quick, very sharp, has gone into half speed. And everyone seems to be focused on themselves. Self-interest is the order of the day. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate, verse 10, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over. What did the chief priests care about? They cared about their own reputation. They cared about their own particular slant on the way they thought it should be. They cared about protecting their own status and livelihood and well-being. They cared for themselves. And the chief priest stirred up the crowd, and it's not difficult to stir up a crowd, especially when it's politically motivated. They were very happy to cheer Jesus on as the coming Messiah into Jerusalem, because for them the coming Messiah meant the one that would release them from the tyranny of Rome, the one that would release them from being slaves under this Roman rule. And as soon as they realized that Jesus was not and would not be that kind of liberator, they turn almost in a moment. Crowds are that fickle. Trust the crowd say the politicians, and I'm making no comment about that. That's simply what they say. So the chief priests are looking out for themselves. Suddenly the crowd are looking out for themselves because they are mad that Jesus has failed them and soon they will release a, a terrorist who is a nationalist who will seek further their own political, personal agenda. The soldiers are only interested in their own amusement. Getting through the day for them, it's business as usual. They never would have imagined that this particular cross on this particular day with this particular man would now be remembered some 2,000 years later. It was just another cross, another man, and super weird, this guy who thought he was the king. He was so unlike a king, all they could do was laugh and mock him. Kings in those days were big and powerful and put the fear quote of God into you, and this man just didn't. He was pathetic and wimpy and wouldn't even answer back, and he stood there in silence, and they mocked him for their own amusement. Maybe they were the ones lucky enough to go away with an extra piece of clothing that day. For a little while later, they would roll some dice to see who got the cloak that seemed to be the most valuable possession Jesus had. The disciples had fled. Judas had betrayed him. Peter had disowned him. All full of self. 
self-interest, self-first, all me, me, me. Somehow the backdrop of self serves only to shed a brighter light on the selflessness of Jesus. Mark doesn't get lost in the detail. He hasn't got much time for pointing out the myriad of prophecies that are being fulfilled. He just records it as it unfolds. And it reaches a chilling conclusion. And they crucified him. This is where selfishness leads. And they crucified him. Crucifixion is the most barbaric, inhumane, agonizing death ever devised. Developed by the Persians 500 years before Christ, and then perfected by the Romans, it was outlawed by Constantine in around AD 300. Such was its indescribable brutality. We get the word excruciating from the word crucifixion. A crucified man would die of asphyxiation, unable to breathe, having to lift himself up in order for air to reach his lungs, only to drop in agony for his lungs to be closed once more. And when that cycle that sometimes went on for days could no longer be repeated, then death would come in the most painful of manner. Occasionally a woman was crucified. It's hard to imagine, isn't it? Sometimes they would crucify women with their face towards the cross. Even somehow they realized that the ugliness, the horror of what they were doing to a human being was too much to see. It's hard because we try and depict it And in depicting it, we want to hold on to our own sense of dignity and value. Uh, And one of the realities about that is that the cross will usually be depicted with a little loincloth or something covering someone's nakedness. Almost certainly everyone was crucified naked. It's hard to get inside the humiliation, the horror of what was going on. People would be crucified at eye level so that you could look the accused in the eyes, so that you could taunt them. The only way a crucified man could fight back would be to urinate or defecate or curse. Can you imagine a place more horrific than urine and feces and blood all mixed in around the foot of a cross? And Isaiah paints this picture that I, I, I didn't used to really understand. I didn't quite get it, but I think I do now. Just as there were many who were appalled at him. Can you imagine what an appalling sight it must have been? His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, and his form marred beyond human likeness. To be honest, it's probably good that we shield ourselves from the horror of it. It's probably good that very rarely would I talk like this. It's probably very good that we uh, coat the cross in some level of sentimentality in order to help us deal with it. The horror makes us want to turn and run, to shut it out, to push it away. But there are moments when it's important, I think, for us to face it. Because the horror of it speaks volumes, I think, about the mess and the depravity and the wickedness and the malice and the selfishness of the human condition. If we could do that to Jesus, then for that reason alone, the cross reveals the incredible mess that human beings have got themselves into. Wouldn't you agree? Tom Smale writes like this, when we get our hands on God, this is what we do to him. When the divine love that we see in Jesus comes among us, not only do we fail to imitate it, but we turn on it. The cross stands to the whole of humanity as a testimony to the tragedy that is at the heart of the human condition. We're getting better, they say. 
We'll educate ourselves out of this mess. We'll psychologize our way, if that's even a word, out of this mess. We'll think our way out of it. We'll work harder our way. This mess is way too deep and way too ugly. And and I know it's them over there. It's not me. I, I didn't do that. I didn't put Jesus on that cross. It was the Roman soldiers, and it was the system, and it was and it was and it was. Yet it was selfishness that did that. And the boomerang comes back, and I go, actually, that same selfishness is in me. Somehow I'm connected with that. Not just with our common humanity, but the seeds which produce that I also find in my own life. And if you look in the mirror and look back and see someone who's only ever been selfless, the Bible says at that moment you deceive yourself and the truth is not in you. Because we are by heart orientated towards looking out only for number one, first and foremost. But there's a deeper picture that unfolds here. If you flick back just to the previous chapter, Mark chapter 14 and verse 36, a a familiar moment in the Garden of Gethsemane when the full horror of what Jesus is about to face um, seems to overwhelm him. He's been resolute, setting his face to Jerusalem. He knows it's going to happen. He's steeling himself. He's ready for it. Mark paints this picture over a number of chapters of, of Jesus' commitment to what he's... And then suddenly it all becomes too much. You know that moment, don't you? When it's overwhelming, in his humanity, he doesn't know how to cope with it. He doesn't know where to turn. And he cries out to his father, Daddy, Father, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. So let's, let's do this different. Let's take this cup away. You see, not only is this where selfishness leads, but this is where salvation is found. Because the cup for Jesus the rabbi The cup for all who knew the Old Testament and would listen to his words. They knew about the cup. The cup was not fizzy pop. The cup of the Old Testament was the cup of of judgment, of of messed upness, of screwed upness, of brokenness, of God's wrath towards all that's wrong. And no wonder God's angry when we do that kind of stuff. Everything that was degrading and disgusting about the human condition is gathered in that cup. And Jesus says, that's the cup I am going to drink. So much more than the crucifixion. So much more than the physical facts that uh, I outlined just a few moments ago. So much more than that, Jesus would carry the weight, the judgment, the punishment, the pain, the consequence, the fruit of this world's selfishness. Looking back, the Apostle Paul summed it up. He said, it's like this, God made Jesus who had no sin, who'd done nothing wrong, made him sin for us. Not like sin, but made him sin. He took the full weight of that sin on himself. And when Jesus said, yes, I'm going to do it, he was not saying, yes, I'm happy to be crucified. He was saying, yes, I'm happy to take this cup. I'm happy for the full weight, the full revelation of everything that's wrong in this world to come upon me. And only after hanging for six hours on the cross, three hours in darkness, in all of that agony, with sin wrapping around his body, with his father turning his face away. Because in that moment, every lie, every lust, every greed, every cheat, Every adultery, 
every selfishness, every wrong word, bad word, hurtful word, it's all Jesus can feel now. It's all he knows. And let's make no mistake, he's terribly, terribly alone. His father is gone. And so he cries this gut-wrenching, heart-aching cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For the first time ever, In all of eternity, Jesus finds himself utterly alone. Sure, you might say he's been alone before on a hillside or out in a boat or up early in the morning, awake through the night. But no, never like this. His father was always there, embracing him through the darkness of the night or whispering to him in the stillness of the early dawn. But now, nowhere. Utterly alone. Alone. It was in so many ways what Jesus had feared the most. The pain so much deeper than the nails and the agony of his lungs. He's alone. And in that aloneness, in that separation from his father, he receives the full consequence, the full weight of all that's wrong with our world. And he cries out in the darkness, who am I? Where am I? Totally lost and disorientated. The two who've always been one are now two. The Trinity dismantled, the Godhead disjointed, the unity utterly in these moments dissolved. Don't ask me to explain it. There's so much about God we can't explain or understand. But the revelation here is that the very heart of God was ripped open. This is where selfishness leads, but in the purpose of God now, this is where salvation is found. And there's nods and winks everywhere in this chapter about all that's been promised in the past. When it talks about um, uh, the Sanhedrin turning over Jesus to Pilate, and then it talks about Pilate turning over Jesus to be crucified, the turn of phrase is, is picking up a sense that there was a divine providence at work even in those moments, in this moment that seemed so out of control, that seemed so at the hands of wicked men, yet somehow God was still in control and working his purpose out. And that in itself is a huge comfort, isn't it? When it all feels like it's gone totally belly up, God somehow is still working his purpose out. And no more true here. God is working his purpose out. So many of these events are prophesied in the Psalms. The cry of dereliction, that cry a moment ago, my God, my God, where have, or why have you forsaken me? The dividing clothes by casting lots, the shaking of heads and mockery, the wine mixed with myrrh and the vinegar, all things that are rooted in the scriptures, that are these nods and winks that God is working his purpose out right here, right now, as Jesus embraced this cup of judgment, this cup of suffering. And Mark, of course, had paved the way, hadn't he? He said, for the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Nice bag, John. It's hard to know what to say, isn't it? It's hard to know what to say. Maybe we can get into it this way. There's all these characters that Mark mentions in the story. Barabbas. Barabbas. I don't know if I've got the verse on here. Maybe I have. Yes. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Early on, when it talks about Barabbas, it uses the phrase, it's a bit weird in a way, the one called Barabbas. The reason it uses the phrase, the one called Barabbas, is like the one, um, the same phrase when it says, um, the high priest, the one called Caiaphas. It's a phrase used to distinguish somebody when there could be confusion. Why in this chapter that's about Jesus, 
does Mark say, the one called Barabbas? And often they'd use that phrase, the one called Barabbas, and, and, and miss out what the actual original name was. Guess what the original name might well have been? Jesus. So you've got this choice, Jesus the Christ or Jesus the Barabbas. And we know the choice that the crowd make. We know, I think, instinctively the choice that we want to make. But it goes deeper than that. In identifying Jesus with Barabbas, it sets up in, 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 in a way only God could set up. That in a moment, these two are going to totally swap places. The cross that Jesus died on was the one that was prepared and measured, need to measure, measured for whom? For Barabbas. We're not actually told that it was measured, that's my hypothesis about it. But nevertheless, the the cross that was there for Barabbas, the one who was full of meeting his own ends and his own agenda, at whatever the cost, the one who committed murder, I will kill for this, selfishness in its extreme, Jesus changes place with him. And so Mark draws us in and invites us to associate ourselves with one or the other and to recognize that as we relate to this story, we are, I am that Barabbas. And Jesus says, do you know what? Let's swap. Let's do a deal. And and everything in us wants to cry out, that's not fair. It wasn't fair that Jesus went to the cross, and it certainly wasn't fair that Barabbas should go free. And that's the point. It's not fair, is it? What God has done for us isn't fair. Are you with me? It's not fair what Jesus did. It's not right. And yet, he offers us that exchange. It was unjust. How come he goes free? We want to say, and you could argue that the whole of heaven could cry out, how come he goes free talking about me? Finally, this is where surprises take place. Surprises take place. Curtain in the temple was a bit of a surprise, wasn't it? They didn't see that coming. It would be like turning up in church one Sunday and all the pews being gone. That's what it would have been like, times 10 or 100. Can you imagine it? The whole focus of everything was this massive curtain. It's like wandering in the next and it being gone. They didn't see that coming. But lots of the characters didn't see what was coming that day. The importance of the curtain is that the curtain was what separated the people from God. Metaphorically, it was a metaphor. How can God be contained behind a curtain? Have you ever heard anything so ridiculous? It was just a way of helping them understand. The curtain gets ripped open. In other words, access to God is, is, is free and easy. To get behind the curtain, you needed a priest and you needed the rules and the regulations. You didn't need it anymore because there was no curtain. Not only do you no longer need uh, to come to a specific place, but you don't need a specific person either in order to access God. They didn't see that coming. But there are other people in the story who didn't see it coming either. The centurion that day did not see it coming. He did not expect to be affected by the death of this weirdo. He crucified hundreds of people. Sometimes hundreds of people were crucified all at once. So this was, this was just the normal commute for him. But something happened that day in the death of Jesus that was to change him for the rest of his life. Something so significant that 2,000 years later we're now talking about it. What was it about the way that Jesus died that reached the hard stone heart of that centurion? I don't know other than for 2,000 years the power of this cross has been changing people's lives. 
And we see it there, right at the beginning. The second Jesus dies, boom, someone's life has changed. And it's a nod and a wink to what was about to happen. But there are other hints along the way. What about Pilate? Pilate says some strange things about Pilate. But Jesus still made no reply. This is before his death. Pilate was amazed or perplexed or intrigued or left wondering. We know he couldn't sleep. We know he was left anxious. We know his wife couldn't sleep and had a dream. And something was going on in their encounter with Jesus around the cross that was changing them, that surprised them. They didn't see it coming. They didn't understand what it was about. And then news gets back to Pilate that Jesus is already dead after six hours. And Pilate can't believe it. He's spooked by it a little bit. He's so spooked by it that he goes and asks the centurion, who's quite a significant and important player, whether Jesus has really died yet. Well, why does he care? Why is he interested? What's going on in that moment? There's something about the dying Jesus that's making a connection to Pilate. Now, I don't know if this is true or not. There's no way of telling or verifying, and in a sense, it doesn't matter. But lots of myth grew up about Pilate coming to faith later on. Uh, all sorts of things are written about him. No idea whether any of that's true. It could all be a load of codswallop. But the point is, something is going on there. In the Scriptures, as you get close to Jesus around the cross... There are surprises for us all. Joseph was a bit of a surprise too, wasn't he? Joseph was part of the council. Who was it that handed Jesus over to be crucified? The council. Was Joseph the cleaner in the council? No. What does it say? A prominent member. So so somehow, the very people that want him dead are getting exactly what they want, but their scenario, their story is beginning to unravel because one of their number, one of those high up, one of the prominent people of their number is spooked by Jesus' death at worst or totally changed by it at best and wants to honour Jesus now in his death. That's a turnaround that's happened in less than 48 hours somehow through the death of Jesus. It was a surprise for Joseph. I wonder if he saw that coming. Who knows? Nicodemus, we're told, another got involved, who'd gone secretly by Jesus at night, now prepared to go public. Something's happening. Lives are beginning to change. And if you know so much about the way that Mark's been writing as we've looked at it over these weeks, these little clues draw us in to think harder about what's going on. And of course, when Mark was writing this, he was writing it after many lives had been changed by the death of Jesus. Don't miss, by the way, the devotion of the women that Mark exemplifies. He's got a very, um, I was going to say a soft spot for women, that didn't sound right, but a very determined uh, uh, desire to honour the women, very against the culture of the day, to raise them up. They're there at the cross, they're there at the tomb, and there's a whole uh, backstory going on there about the redemption of, uh, of women in biblical history. So Paul would say this, as he looks back on the events... He says, you know what I've discovered? That whatever else you think it's about, it's about Jesus and him crucified. So that's what we preach. We preach Christ crucified because it's the power of God and the wisdom of God. And it makes no sense, does it? That something so awful, so horrific, so out there, that an injustice so great should have become the place of transformation for so many. Statistically today, more people will put their trust in Jesus than at any other time in history. Not only is the cross of Christ still changing lives, but that momentum is continuing to increase all the time. I'm going to invite you to be quiet for a few minutes.
few proper minutes. Might be three minutes, four minutes. What is the cross to you? To you. What is the cross to you? Lord Jesus, would you help me to personalize the events of 2,000 years ago? As your word says, the Son of God who loved me. I can put my name there. Son of God who loved Simon and gave himself for him. I invite you to whisper that phrase with your name. The Son of God who loved and gave himself for me. The Son of God who loved and gave himself 